Welcome to the Geek-Centric Podcast, and welcome to our watch club for HBO's The Last of Us. And there are no treatments for this, no preventatives, no cures. They don't exist. It's not even possible to make them. So if that happens, we lose. Watch Club. My name is Nate, and this is our Watch Club for HBO's The Last of Us, episode one titled When You're Lost in the Darkness, directed by Craig Mazin. Special thanks, as always, to our partners at Crave and HBO for letting us watch this series in advance. If you're joining us for the first time, this is Watch Club, our weekly review series, kind of like a book club, but way better. Keep in mind, we will be going into full spoilers for this episode, uh, but not the games. Uh, but still, if you haven't watched this week's episode yet, be sure to do so, and then come right back faster than a fresh, hungry runner. Now, before we're all infected with cordyceps, let me introduce you to a, our burly band of survivors. First up, he's taller than a bloater, and he's certainly an Ellie toter. He's Justin, the Joel-loving Lawrence. Yo, yo. An Ellie toter, right? You're yeah, Ellie tote toter, it's very fitting. Baby Ellie around, yep, right? exactly. Listeners, he's got a baby. Right. She's named Ellie. Is, is she named after? She's not named after, but when my wife okay. said, I like the name Ellie, I was like, yeah. so do I. It's from <laughs> one of my favorite video games. Oh, perfect. I was perfect. on board right away. There we go. Uh, and listen, someone else who's on board with us, joining us, he's the Savage Starlight, uh, and he always keeps his mask airtight. He's here to fight the good fight. He's Kevin, the Clicker Kisser Hudson. Oh my, that is no way to endure and survive. No, I don't think so. I don't should think not so. be going around kissing clickers. Yeah, do you think there's cl clicker kissers like like a, a whole fetish of people who want to like? Oh my like, gosh! <laughs> Listen, I thought this show got dark right out of the gate. We find the weirdest thing to say. <laughs> oh my gosh! But listen, instead of answering that question, I want to know how are you two doing this fine apocalyptic evening? Great. We got the Last of Us well. in our life now as a HBO series, and it's crazy. All is right as rain. I'm so incredibly excited to talk about the show. Like, it's it's been you know quite a while uh, on the way since we heard that this show is going to be made. Um, and you know, I, I think we we haven't really discussed video games on this podcast as much as I would like to. Uh, and so I think The Last of Us has come up in conversation maybe you know a million times. Well, I wanted to ask what your experiences were with the game, uh, Kevin. Did you play the The Last of Us? Have you played Part One or Part Two? I've only played part one, okay. um, but what's nice is I didn't play it until I think it was you know midway through last year. So I haven't had the the excruciating ten year wait uh, to see it in live action that some people have. Um, so it hasn't it hasn't felt like this decade long journey to get to this point for me. But having played the game, I was exceptionally excited to uh, to get around to the show, and I do think I'll have to sneak in a playthrough of the second one before the show catches up to that point. Yeah, you should for sure. Uh, for myself, yeah, I, I played this game over 10 years ago when it first came out. And yeah, I remember just being so in awe 
with with the story and the narrative of this game. You know, in a time when um, you know movies and shows were so oversaturated with the post-apocalyptic survivalist uh, genre, you know, here is The Last of Us, a video game that is taking those tropes and that that story and imagining it through the video game, and it's so compelling. And you know, now coming ten years later, for it to be now a show, a show, it feels right? like it's come full circle. You know, uh, from from video game to series. So, yeah, huge fan, huge fan. I think it's um, it's one of those things where, in my mind, there's before The Last of Us and there's after The Last of Us when it comes to video game narrative. Uh, and it's just that story, especially in, in, in part one, and then especially in part two, even more so. Um, I just, I really felt like it, it pushes video game narratives forward and in such a compelling way. And like you said, Justin, it is like we're, you know, playing a movie or in this case, you know, a TV show. Um, and I think, I think this show in a lot of ways is, is going to push forward the video game adaptation uh, in, sure. in, in within its own medium. And so I think that's so cool that like they just continue to take this story and it continues to push forward the mediums that it's in. It's just... Yeah, because the beauty of the game is that you're playing like a human story, right? Like there is obviously some some very high level apocalyptic qualities to it. But at, at the end of it, it's not like you're some superhuman being that's powering up every time you you go from mission to mission no you're you're playing this mission to see the next part of the story to see the human part of the story so i think that that's just in itself is is such a, a unique experience when it when you think of the video game genre and how how it has very much stapled itself with you know powering up and leveling up and and all of this stuff like to me that was actually the least important thing. I remember when I was playing the game and someone was was over at my place but why, and we were playing it together. Like, you have like nothing and you're at the <laughs> end of the game. Yeah. And it's because I, I didn't really consider that to be any importance because I was just moving through the, the motions of the story. Um, right. So I, I think that's a huge testament to the success of the game to, to really put the player in the narrative experience rather than just this high-level, over-the-top game experience. Absolutely just quickly also just shout out the fact that like Naughty Dog for the games has done an exceptional job of pushing the boundaries with accessibility in video games as well uh, and shout out to our friend Steve Saylor who has worked with them on on the accessibility for uh, these projects and just making them more accessible so that more people can play the games so that more people can access this story and I think this show in its own way, even furthers that accessibility for people that simply just don't want to play a video game, mm -hmm. but still want to see and, and learn about Experience these characters the in this world. Yeah. It's fantastic. Listen, mm -hmm. before Nana Adler sinks her fungal mouth into one of us, let's get into <laughs> this episode. Uh, so the opener starting off in 1968, uh, we get this ABC broadcast with the host played by Josh Brenner, uh, having a conversation with two epidemiologists. Uh, and one of them is played by Christopher Heyerdahl and the other one by John Hanna. Uh, and uh, he delivers a really dark and dire prediction on the possible fungal outbreak uh, to which we have no way of stopping, like at all. Uh, then we cut to the opening credits scored by the same composer for the games, the fantastic Gustavo Santoalala. Um, so let's start off here. What did you think of this cold open into the show and uh, the show's title sequence? Perfect. 
especially coming out of uh, the pandemic. Well, we're still in the pandemic. Yeah. To see this conversation it was very um, eye-opening. It, it, it felt like we were in the future watching the past. And given the experiences that we've had over the last two years, it's almost as if like you don't even know Scary. how relevant this topic is. And obviously, if you have any knowledge of, of what the show's about, you know the conversation that they're having is very grave. And it does very much pull at the thread of of what's to come. I loved how the audience almost looked, you know, in a trance, almost zombified yeah. by the doctor delivering it. I was like, are they already, like, <laughs> infected, infected because they look yeah. infected just yeah. staring at, at what was going on um but yeah you you have this very um haunting cold opening that definitely sets the stage of, of what we're about to see uh followed by this this gorgeous uh title sequence that almost felt very reminiscent of of game of thrones with the way that it was super fungal spreads and mm -hmm. you know you're tracking it and you know you see the nuance of spores and things taking shape like the city taking shape um growing from the ground um i think obviously the the spreading and the infection that that they captured through through the the, the rocks and the the landscape to to build it it was it was so well crafted because the land and the people are obviously so important to the story of of the last of us yeah. so well done in the in the opening sequence yeah it really was kind of the perfect prologue to an episode that i kind of feel is the prologue to the series <laughs> overall yeah, And it's something they did really well throughout the entire episode is sort of just lay the groundwork, explain what we're dealing with, how everything works, it, you know, step by step. And that that prologue there uh, with John Hanna d delivering that speech just sort of, it really just sets the tone for the show, uh, you know, fulfills all your expectations in terms of what to be looking forward to and, and how something like this could happen. I just like that that was a a way that wasn't in the game that they 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 utilized to sort of explain how what's about to happen could happen and i thought it was a very smart way to do that yeah it wasn't it didn't feel you know i think a lot of the times uh be, you know opening exposition for especially just opening straight up with exposition feels can feel a bit cheap uh mm. this didn't feel cheap i felt yeah. like it reminded me of how it how they actually did in the games where uh, during the title sequence, we hear the radio broadcast yes. and the news broadcast sort of talking about the spreading of the of the pandemic. Um, and then, yeah, those opening titles, dude. Yeah, absolutely correct. They're they're very similar to an HBO thing. And it's funny, though, because I went back and looked at the opening titles for the game and they're very similar, similar yeah. to the point where like even even if you look at those opening titles, you'd be like, oh, this is an HBO show. Like they kind of already had it. <laughs> and so they didn't have to sure. change too much. Um, and of course, keeping the original theme, if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it. Um, Josh Brenner, uh, big head from Silicon Valley was big not head. the first voice that I was expecting to hear in this show. Um, and he's trying so desperately to make this like late night show you know, laughable in light. And he's got probably the two most depressing guests <laughs> that he could possibly have. <laughs> and then Christopher Heyerdahl, who, you know, we might recognize recently from HBO's Peacemaker. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of interesting because in that show, you know, spoilers for Peacemaker, but he does also get infected uh, with a with a species that takes over his mind. So it's mm -hmm. just kind of, it's funny to sort of see those parallels. And then John Hanna, um, who you might recognize, I recognize him from The Mummy, uh, the mummy. back in the day, day, right? The Mummy, for sure. All yeah. day. Um, and just the way that he calls out global warming as what makes this possible, 
I think it's just it's really cool because that wasn't that wasn't really in the in the game. Um, and so the fact that they're pulling from sort of a mix of what happened in the game and then in our real world just is so terrifying. It hits so close to home. Um, and interestingly enough, like the pandemic and COVID is actually the reason that Naughty, Bo- Naughty Dog rebranded uh, Outbreak Day, which was the celebration of The Last of Us on social media. Yeah. Uh, they changed it to The Last of Us Day. Yes. And it, and, and it, I think it also has a lot to do with like some of the pushback on when the part two was released and all that stuff, right? So it's just, um, I don't know, man. I think this was such a really well done cold open that just like it was I I was so impressed and it was just so creepy and eerie yeah it set the stage but to be completely clear like this is all based on on actual findings like what he's describing as a fungi uh infection that takes over are real right so i think that to me is also just just as haunting as this cold open is is knowing that that it actually does exist and obviously we're we're talking about extreme situations but look at what we're at right now in terms of a pandemic because you have someone yeah. talking about a pandemic and then you have someone else talking about a fungal infection that's spreading it's it's kind of like in that moment as an audience member watching it we're we're, we're not that far off you know what i mean like yeah. is it possible it, it could be possible so i know i don't know it's slightly terrifying and the world is getting warmer as as we know so yeah yeah, it's the last thing that we need is for just the last of us to come true. Because um, I really don't think any one of us would do that great. Um, but <laughs> um, let's jump to a, a, a better time or maybe a, a worse time, I guess. Uh, 2003, uh, we get to Sarah's room and we sort of follow her you know, throughout her day. Uh, she cooks her dad, you know, a birthday breakfast. She heads off to school uh, with some cash and her dad's watch. Uh, she stops by a repair shop to get the watch fixed, but her transaction is interrupted by the shopkeeper's, uh, I guess, partner or business partner or wife who comes in to tell them they need to close the store right now. I don't care if you even, I, I'm like, did she even pay him? I don't know if she paid him. It's like, nope, just close, close the store. And so uh, Sarah then returns home, but visits with the Adlers next door as promised uh, by Joel earlier in the episode. Uh, and by the way, did you guys catch the Atkins diet yeah. reference? That was <laughs> that was a total 2003, 2003. like <laughs> reference. <laughs> I'm on Atkins, yeah. Like I heard, I'm like I know Atkins. I'm oh I'm old. Okay, uh, while visiting with them, uh, we see Sarah walk into the room with Mrs. Adler's mother in it, and in the background, we see her body start to shake and spasm and convulse. Uh, and then Sarah leaves as well. She, Kevin's doing the face right now. Our listeners can't see it, but <laughs> that was I'm creepy. happy. They, that's it's so terrifying. Sarah leaves <laughs> as Mercy is whimpering and staring at the old lady. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, overhead, three f- three fighter jets fly past her, causing her to worry even more about what might be going on. So this moment was so uncomfortable and probably one of the more horrific moments in the episode. Uh, what did you guys think of this focus on Sarah's day uh, and this first hint at the infection taking over Mrs. Adler's mother? Well, I love that very much like the video game. It's, it's from Sarah's point of view. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that we, we stay with her. We understand her day to day. And we actually get to see, you know, as you described, some of the moments that allude to what is to come. Um, I think, you know, apart from going to the watch shop, another one that really stood out to me was when she was in her class and yeah. the kid's arms started twitching Shaking. and the light Ugh. was was flickering on her face. And, you know, muscle spasm is is obviously one of the side effects of 
of this infection. So it was that it was there. You know, you hear the subtle cough in the distance, yeah, in the background, and I'm right, like, right, and like right we're there. all like freaking out about coughs. Well, these coughing, days, so and it's that's like... that's it. That's that's the thing because of the pandemic, we're yeah. attuned when we hear those things to understand what that what that symbolizes and what that means. So I think it was very, very smart to kind of trickle it out, leading to this terrifying moment with Nana Adler. Like oh. the fact that it's out of focus the entire time is even more scary than it being in focus and, and focusing on her. It's eerie. It's haunting. It it brings in the uh sensibility of horror movie genre more so because I think in the video game we get a lot more of the jump scares that really Mm -hmm. do terrify you and that's the way the game uses horror but here it's like they're showing you it in the background out of focus and it was so horrific and just absolutely terrifying Yeah. yeah I was scared but I loved it yeah well and I think I like how they sort of deviated from the game a little bit here to sort of give us uh this this experience during the day of of Sarah's day rather than starting at night where the game picks up, I believe. And what it does is it allows us to identify with Sarah a bit more so that when eventually things happen, it means more for us as an audience. It means more for Joel's character from you know that we can see. So I thought that was a really smart idea to sort of elaborate on their relationship a bit more. Yeah, and Kevin, like, they wouldn't be... Like, in a video game, that wouldn't really work as well because I think the biggest thing is like yes that prologue is fantastic in the video game but like I just don't know if somebody who is like if I was replaying the game right now and they added that absolutely I would love to play through Sarah's day in the school and and going to the Adler's house but as a first time player of the game there's no way that would have ever worked so the fact that we get it in a TV show is is that's how they're they're sort of flexing the fact that this is a TV show uh, and I love how you're right like they they take their time with it they slowly let the outbreak sink in over over time um and then you know getting all the way to you know i think the 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 uh the nana adler just going all you know it chapter two on us was very <laughs> like that's what it reminded me of i thought i thought pennywise was back but her mouth is opening up in the background and i think the choice to keep it blurred is is so well done it's so cool because again it kind of it kind of like you were saying, Justin. It, it replicates how they're sort of bringing the pen or bringing the. I keep wanting to call it the pandemic, the the outbreak um, into this world, because that's how we would experience it, especially in two thousand and three, when we're not all on iPhones, right? We're not all on smartphones back then, and we're not instantly connected to the internet. Um, and so it's just one of those things where, because like I even remember, you know, Kevin, when we were at your your wedding in Disney. And hearing the woman, like, four people ahead of us in line, just sort of like, oh, they're calling it COVID-19 or something. Like, I heard that. <laughs> I, it's, like, ingrained into my memory. Um, and that's because she had that instant access to that. But in 2003, they would not have had that. So the way that they sort of just blur the background of this entire situation is fantastic. That was, its, I think, the pinnacle. It's like there, the virus is here, whereas everything else was just sprinkled throughout based on, on her day. On a day in the life of Sarah, we're watching how this thing is just going from being talked about on the radio in Jakarta to suddenly being right at their front door in Houston. To your point, they used this new portion as the ability to tell a story with Sarah 
to help flush that out, to help really make it more impactful to when we get to the nighttime sequence. And just before we do, I did want to just shout out the fact that they're they're giving us Easter eggs visually right up front and and sort of in your face. And then they're also giving us some subtle ones. Like, for instance, one that's right in your face. Uh, she's wearing the the uh, Halicon Drops T-shirt, uh, which is the band uh, that uh, Sarah likes. And she's wearing literally the same T-shirt in the game. Uh, but one interesting thing to note is that on the back of the shirt, um, in the show, it says the 2000 tour, whereas in the games, it says the 2010 tour, because in the games, uh, this moment takes place in 2013. So it's just, it's cool to see those like little minor adjustments. But then even, even like the way they literally start off the first shot in her room with the curtains blowing in the wind from the, like from the, the open window, the game. right? Yeah. That's literally the start screen yeah. of the game. And it's yeah. just... And the spores, you see, you see that, it. like when they cut to the close up of her face after the yeah. window shot, you see the little the dust little spores dust. just kind of like, like in the air. So it was all very like as soon as it faded in on that, I was like, oh, that's the opening of the game. There we are, and even the fade right to that windowsill, like it was, <sighs> it's very, it's so very good. video game. All right, let's keep going here. 10 p.m. hits, and Joel finally gets home uh, without a cake. Sarah gives him the repaired watch and a copy of Curtis and Viper 2. Uh, and Joel tells Sarah not to fall asleep, which, of course, she does. Uh, Joel gets a call from Tommy, who's gotten himself in jail after stopping a guy from attacking a woman at a bar. And Joel takes Sarah up to bed, kisses her on the forehead, uh, and then heads out to get Tommy. Uh, so this moment, like a lot of moments in this episode, is pulled straight from the games. Um, what did you think of Joel's birthday? And did you catch the Easter egg from The Last of Us Part 2? I think it's his guitar, right? Oh, almost. I mean, the guitar is a huge part of both of the Last of Us games, um, but it's the it's the DVD. Uh, Curtis and the Viper Two uh, oh, yeah, is an Easter says. egg from the Last of Us Part Two. Apparently, um, there's a moment where Ellie's chatting with Dina about the movies that Joel's into, and so it's just so cool to sort of have them sort of rework that into something that he would have experienced with Sarah. Um, and again, I know that they're not necessarily saying, especially with this time jump, that the games and the show are going to be directly related canonically. But just to sort of have that little idea that like, oh, no, yes, he, him and Sarah probably did enjoy uh, that movie before he ever would have enjoyed it with Ellie um, is, was so lovely. It was the last thing he did with her. We'll, we'll get to that. But it is the last mm -hmm. thing that they watched together. So maybe that's why. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I love that, you know, you know, this feels, you know, entirely of the game. Like the dialogue is exact same when she's giving him the watch and mm -hmm. and everything, and then they've integrated a whole other narrative element about uh, Tommy being apprehended, uh, mm -hmm. which kind of gives justification, I guess, in in the game as to why he left. Why he left? Yeah, like why yeah. he wasn't why he wasn't there. Um, so that to me, sh in this moment, it kind of shows the liberties of taking what worked from the game literally giving it to the audience as, as like this is a story element this was crucial to the video game it's going to be replicated here and now here's a little bit more to get you know spread a little bit more context to give a little bit more light to to uh other situations that are going to come up and then even the way that they sort of because they, they didn't focus this on this as much in the uh in the in the game but the the line that she says in both the game and the show uh, i sell hardcore drugs um, was perfectly executed by Nico Parker here, um, as well as the lame watch not working joke uh, mm. from Joel. 
but it's funny though because the way that they do it in the show with I sell hardcore drugs is foreshadowing um, mm. to the future in this episode where we literally see Joel selling uh, hardcore drugs. So it's just it's really um, it's cool how they're sort of weaving this the, again these new little aspects into the show. Um, so eleven eleven oh three to two sixteen a.m. Uh, at 2.16 a.m., Sarah's woken up from the sounds of the helicopters flying overhead. She checks the TV and a national security message is repeating, telling people to stay indoors. <laughs> we get a jump scare from Mercy, the Adler's dog, and Sarah attempts to take Mercy back home, completely blatantly ignoring the fact that uh, if she was just told to stay indoors. Mercy resists and breaks out of his collar when Sarah hears a noise inside the house. She walks inside, and in the kitchen, she slips on blood that's flowing out of Mr. Adler's neck. She sees, Mr. She sees Mrs. Adler on the floor, uh, and on top of her is Mrs. Adler's mom, who stands up, and we get a good first look at the cordyceps fungus coming from her mouth. She chases Sarah out onto the road, where thankfully Joel and Tommy have just arrived, uh, and Nana Adler runs at Joel, and he bludgeons her over the head. They all get in the truck and manage to escape, driving past a family in need, Jimmy's place, which is, a, which is on fire, uh, and a military blockade until eventually they get to the city, but the crowds are slowing them down. And then out of nowhere, a plane crashes behind them, and the front wheel uh, flies off the plane uh, and, and hits the truck, taking out their vehicle. So, so intense. You know, between the moments with with the Adlers and the plane crash, these are these again are new additions to the story. And I know that we sound like a broken record here, but but I just I love the way that they have like Nana Adler is not eating her daughter, but she's infecting her. Right. We see the tendrils coming out of her mouth. And and, and it, apparently that's actually from a piece of concept art that was used um, in. Yeah. yeah, because in the show, according to Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann, they don't they didn't want to go with spores because yeah. they didn't want to hide their actors faces behind masks like another certain Pedro Pascal Pascal role. <laughs> <laughs> which is also similar to Joel. Um, you know, I, I get that they, they wouldn't want to do that with these performances, but um, let's talk about these moments. What did you think of the, the Nana Adler's uh, bludgeoning and, uh, and this plane crash? Uh, I mean, it was, it was so um, exciting. And after, you know, uh, the slow build that we get uh, at the beginning of the show, again, a longer version than we, we ever got in the game, all of a sudden it picks up with this really intense, um, uh, just action that very, very um, it does a great job of mimicking the experience of the start of the game. It was kind mm -hmm. of like I said to Sarah, I said, "Oh, the game is, has officially started now uh, <laughs> at nighttime and everything." And just the way they were driving and filming from the back seat, exactly. it felt like yeah. we, we were back playing the game mm -hmm. in those opening scenes. I thought it was so well done. So yeah, I, I think that again the way this series is adopting from the game from a visual perspective in these moments you know seeing the burning the burning farm you know uh the perspective of being in the back of the truck watching the mayhem in this very much a, a long one take uh choreographed driving experience felt very children of men with the, the camera 360 inside giving you this sort of claustrophobic tense experience and, and to kevin's point with such a slow build even you know as as sarah confronts the, the neighbor's house and goes in god i don't understand why she would go in uh, <laughs> but she went in and what she discovered was was pretty wild and the look for this this new infected um with with the the, the sort of tentacles of uh coming out of the mouth it's almost as if 
the the real monsters living is like literally living inside mm-hmm. of of the humans and and infecting and and you know obviously affecting their motor skills because Nana Adler was wheelchair bound <laughs> and a mute and now she's you know perched up like a zombie and running down her victims like mad so it's crazy you called it out like changing it from spores to something else that that was on the table i think that's smart because it still feels obviously inspired from the game but it's introducing something new as we're talking about and even in these moments with with her confronting the house and giving us that moment of a horror movie before we get into this like you know 28 days later or 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 very much like a again a zombie style flick where just mayhem is breaking loose it's it's all paced really well for you to feel, you know, the moment of, of tension and, and fear. Well, even even the woman, the you know, coming out and he's like, get back in your house. And then, you know, you Denise. see that moment where, yeah, Denise, get, <laughs> you lock the door, Denise. And then and then you, you see that moment where uh, Mr. Adler and Mrs. Adler are running towards the truck and they and have Tommy to run, they like run down. over them yeah. he just mows them down and denise joel come on joel denise <laughs> yeah. he told you to stay inside yeah and they told you gets, to stay inside she gets eaten and then yeah. oh my gosh it's just poor denise uh but that was very uh, uh, dawn of the dead that moment yes, the, yes the opening exactly scene of dawn, dawn of, of the dead, dead. Yeah. yes there you go yeah. um but it was so perfectly timed the way that they did these i mean they weren't necessarily like one shots, but a lot of these shots were really long. Um, and so the way they would have had to have timed all these extras running in certain directions. The headlights lining up on them as they run down the alley. Like, you just know, the so way the cop masterful. cars fly by, you know, everything had to be like properly timed. But I'm liking that the perspective of the camera can sometimes feel reminiscent of the game, not just the dialogue. It's, it's what we're seeing on screen that can invoke being back in the game. Absolutely. But but what didn't happen in the game was a freaking plane crash. And so, you know, I was gripped the entire time, even though, again, I'd seen a lot of these moments in the past. But to then get that plane crash was kind of like that that little because you see the part where the car is supposed to hit and the, the car stops. And I'm like, oh, but in the game, the car hit them. And then this plane comes out of nowhere. And the crazy thing is, I rewatched that sequence. You can see the plane in the air losing yes. control yeah. prior to the moment when it starts coming closer oh, to them. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Um, awesome. So it's like, <laughs> I just the, the amount of detail that they're putting into this series just speaks to their their like their like budget and, and just how much how much they're, they care about care. This, uh, yeah. this story. is so good. Yeah. Um, so anyways, they, listen. They wake up and Sarah's ankle is injured from the crash. Joel carries her and Tommy tells them uh, that he'll meet them at the river. Joel, which by the way, can I just mention how much Tommy, uh, how much um, Gabriel Luna sounds so much like Tommy in the game. Like if you close your eyes, it's the same person. It's absolutely insane. Anyway, sorry. Um, Joel carries her while being pursued by an infected runner through a diner. uh, And just as it's about to reach them, it's shot by a military officer who proceeds to point his gun at Joel and Sarah. He checks checks in with his higher-ups over the radio and is instructed to take them out. He lifts his gun and shoots at them as Joel turns uh, and he falls, dropping Sarah. The soldier walks up to Joel, about to execute him, and Tommy shoots the soldier dead, just in time to save his brother. Tommy motions towards Joel, and he looks over to see his daughter on the ground. She's shaking, and she's being fatally wounded. Joel picks her up, and in shock, holds her close to him as she takes her final breath. So, I, I'm, I'm already getting choked up Worst here. Worst 
birthday ever. Worst birthday ever for sure. Um, <laughs> this, you know, I think uh, even after playing the game and knowing this was going to happen, you know, we we knew this was going to happen. I, I felt like it was this was going to happen in the first episode, um, and just the performances from both Pedro Pascal and and Nico Parker here were just unbelievable. The way Nico is is breathing and, and, and panting so heavily. Uh, and I think for me, where I started crying, and shocker, I cried. Um, the part where I started crying and it really hit me was when Tommy says Joel. He just says Joel. And and Joel looks over because Tommy's a war vet, right? And they established that of that little bumper sticker on the truck. And so he knows what a fatal injury looks like. So he knows in that moment, Sarah's not going to pull through. And and Joel just won't believe it. He can't believe it because that's his little girl. He's not, you know, he's he just can't let her go. And I just I was not ready for this moment. And you two both have daughters now. Did this hit you harder now than it did when you first saw it in the video game? Well, yeah, I, now that you have a da- I have a daughter, it definitely hits different. But I, I get mushy now when I see just babies in general. So <laughs> babies I, I in general. I don't know if I'm, I, I, you know, <laughs> Avatar when they're holding up the blue baby. Yeah, yeah, join the crybaby club. Like, Let's go. I was go. like, oh, so cute. I think of my own baby. <laughs> Let's go. Um, I, you know, I think that what really stands out about this moment, because you're right, it, it is a moment that we know is very pivotal to Joel's character um, and that is going to fuel his future, if you will, in some ways, but to see it realized in this live action with acting performances from, from Pedro Pascal and Nico Parker, it just gave a whole new level of emotion to, to this moment. But even the moment itself is, is it's crazy that the irony is that he's, he's running to protect her from this virus so that she doesn't get infected essentially Mm -hmm. and get her out of there. Yet what ends up killing her is fear is fear from someone else who is afraid that potentially she could be infected and that mm. they could get sick. And that is going to be a core theme along with love throughout yeah. this this story is, is the balance of the two. Because as we're going to see later, is fear is very much driven a lot of the decision-making that, that is the future. And, you know, fear is what killed his daughter. And him having fear stopped him from actually being able to save her. So it's a, it's a really... A poignant moment that's surrounded by humanity and and a human emotion, rather than anything that is is in relation to the infection and the disease and and all of that. So I I think I I love this moment in the game and I love it here because it still hits that that uh, again human point of the story. Yeah, no, I I think the 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 sort of the way that they you know kind of. Because in the game, you know, the way that they sort of their their vocal performances were incredible. I think the first time I played it, not in the remaster and not in the PS5 remastered version, you know, there it's it was really, really good motion capture for the faces. The performances were still phenomenal. But you're right, Justin, there's something about, again, sort of getting to that live action moment and Pedro Pascal just acts his, his ass off. Um, I did want to just sort of shout out a sort of a fun a fun Easter egg fact um, oh, for a not you're talking very about fun Craig moment. Yeah, Craig Mason yeah. is the military soldier the military that shoots. Guy, yeah. Um, yeah. I noticed which, his voice. His voice yeah. stood out. I was like, I was like, is that him? Yeah, is so that? The and then I think it was confirmed by yeah from it was confirmed by uh, New Rockstars. Uh, okay, that's where I, so I got the confirmation. Um, all right, let's let's keep going here. Um, we we then cut to twenty years later. Uh, it's twenty twenty three. We see a small child stumbling towards and then collapsing in front of the Boston quarantine zone. 
He's holding a Fedra patch and he's wheeled, uh, he's, he's wheeled in in a wheelchair and tied up. Uh, and the Fedra officers check his infection status. And when they see it, uh, it reads red, they stick a small needle in his arm. At that point, we imagine they've, they've gone and euthanized the small boy. Uh, and then that's confirmed in the next scene when we see a woman, she's carrying bodies to a mass grave and she's unable to continue because it's a kid. So she asks Joel to, to carry this kid uh, to the fire uh, and he carries the body and tosses him in. So just really quickly here, um, you know, did you guys immediately notice uh, or catch on to the fact that they they completely off this kid. Like, I I got the the dark feeling that that was happening, but for for us to go from that dark moment of losing Sarah to then another dark moment, like I thought I thought we'd get a little bit of levity in this show, um, right. but it just shows that Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann are not holding back. Like it just was so rough to see this. It's interesting because I thought I thought like when when they did it the demeanor I was like okay red's not a good color yeah and, right I was like that's not that's the first sign but then she was so nice yeah. and she so was so polite and I'm like yo is this girl like being nice to just kill him and I like how the reveal at the gravesite if you will uh, really was like whoa they did kill him yeah. like I was like shocked I was like nah there's no way they're going to but right, right in that moment it was it was very clear and. The lifeless, soulless Joel just picking up this kid, walking him over and just tossing him in the fire. You know, I think if anything, the the one two lost moment is just to show how it doesn't affect Joel anymore. You know what I mean, yeah, he's he's numb to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that was a very uh, Jojo Rabbit and the shoes moment there um, with the with the small little boy. Um, mm. But yeah, just just a really great job of of instantly introducing us to what the world is like 20 years after the outbreak and and the things that people have to do to survive i mean he's just he's there making his his food stamps or whatever you know and and the job of the day is hucking bodies into a bonfire i mean that's just what a shitty way to have to live your life is it is it even worth it at that point if you know he that day he was you know, bought on the body disposal duty. His next job was cleaning up poop somewhere. Like, yeah, that's just, he's just going from one crappy job literally to another. <laughs> well, and it's because those are the jobs that pay the most in in uh, in in food vouchers, or I guess what, what were they called? Well, in vouchers. It's clear. It's vouchers, like the yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. They, it's it rations. I think is rations, what they were calling yes. them, right? So yeah, and it's and it's interesting because I think that sewer. Part of the reason why he took that sewer job was probably a little bit of reconnaissance, which we'll we'll talk about later. But I think that some Ooh. of what they're doing is is also like it alludes to just surviving. Do you know what I mean? Surviving however you can. And I think the next scene will is very much indicative of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um <clears throat> so we see Joel is working all sides of Fedra, right? As we just mentioned, he's working by day, but then he's smuggling by night uh and maybe he is smuggling through those sewers as you as you alluded to there justin uh he's working on a deal with a fedra soldier who he trades he sells hardcore drugs uh to for extra ration tickets and some cigarettes uh he's working towards getting a truck so that he can find tommy who's now been missing for about roughly three weeks um, the Fedra soldier tells him to stay off the streets for the next few nights, telling him the Fireflies have been kidnapping, uh, or sorry, have been not kidnapping, t- 
telling uh, telling him the Fireflies have been keeping the other soldiers up all night. Um, and then we cut to Tess, uh, and we see she's she's been beaten. And Robert asks her to forget about the deal that she, that he screwed her over on, uh, as he's afraid of her guy. He says, um, as he finally agrees to let her go, the wall explodes from what we would imagine is a probably a firefly car bomb uh, outside. And uh, Robert is gone, and Tess manages to pull herself out of the building, only to get caught right in the middle of a firefight between the between Fedra uh, and a group of fireflies. Fedra forces her to the ground, and she shouts that she's not a firefly as they subdue her. So this is our first introduction to Tess. Um, I wanted to know, you know, this is again a moment we didn't really get to see in the game um what are your initial thoughts of anna torv as tess personally uh i i didn't find the performance or the the adaptation all that spectacular i mean pedro's done such a great job with joel so far we're going to meet bella soon who is terrific in her role i never found tess to be all that memorable of a, of a character she's not in the we're not with her in the game all that much, right? Yeah. The focus is obviously on our two main characters. So I didn't know mm -hmm. if it was, I don't know if it was as important for this character to stand out. It's almost good that she didn't, as we can really stay attached to Joel here as we're learning about, you know, what they do on a day to day basis. I just think it's nuts to see how insanely dangerous this QZ is. Like, what's supposed to be a safe haven? You're right, Kevin, is one of the worst places to possibly be that seems like it might even be worse than being out in the wild with the with the clickers. Um, and so just the fact that, like, they're literally standing there and then just a bomb goes off. Like, you could just be having tea in your house and then a bomb goes off next to your, your window and, and that's it. Like, it's just absolutely terrifying. And I also like how scared Robert is of, quote unquote, her guy with her guy being Joel. Like... I just it you know we we kind of get the sense that Joel has done some pretty you know terrible things in the past to the people that hurt the ones that he loves, and so you know we can tell that Robert is just absolutely terrified, and we get to sort of I think that's a little subtle foreshadowing of a moment that we do get with Joel uh, that we'll talk about at the end of the episode, but um, but yeah I just I don't know I, I I liked again how we're getting a little bit more added to this story. Um, prior to what we got in the games. So we cut again to another individual in, in captivity, uh, and this time it's it's Ellie. She's going by uh, Veronica, uh, which I'm, I'm almost wondering if that's um, alluding to like Betty and Veronica. Like maybe she found like an Archie comic, because we know she's into comics uh, in the game. So I'm just wondering if maybe she found a, an Archie comic and, and she named herself Veronica. Um, but uh, she doesn't want to give, you know, obviously her captors her real name. Uh, and then they do a routine checkup on her, asking her to count from one to ten or one to fuck you, as she says. Uh, and then <laughs> holds, uh, she has to hold her hand out. So uh, our introduction to Belly, Be Belly, Bella Ramsey as Ellie. Um, you know, what did you think of her portrayal as as Ellie in this episode? You know, she, she humble beginnings from uh, from little uh, Lyanna Stark in Game of Thrones. What did you think, Kevin? You were you were you were saying you thought she did a phenomenal job as uh, yeah. As she Ellie she here. just instantly exudes that sort of confidence that that you know smart aleck attitude, the the joke cracking and and sarcastic tone. I just thought she she was Ellie um, in her own sort of way and I thought she she really she didn't have much time in this episode to sort of introduce herself to the world be it former game players or people who are meeting this character for the first time but I think 
she made the most of her limited screen time to give a really good sense of who this character is. And and I'm excited to see how, the, uh, you know, I, I can already tell how great the chemistry is going to be between Bella and Pedro. I, I'm very excited to see that blossom. Just a clarification before the, before the HBO super fans uh, come for us. Liana Mormont. Mormont. Uh, Liana yeah, Mormont is, is, like, is Oh, of course. Like, You're no so yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed uh, as a huge Game of Thrones fan. I've really... <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, like, you know, to Kevin's point, that smart Alec, smart mouth uh, teen jumps right off the screen in, in the first minutes that we see Bella as, as Ellie. And I think that um, she makes her stamp. You know, she stamps her her herself as as the character in this moment. And even though, like you said, this episode we we don't see Joel and Ellie together, right? They're they're very much apart, and we're understanding, I guess, who they are as individuals before we start to see them together. Um, which, as like Kevin was saying, I'm very excited to see how that's that's gonna blossom and how that uh, you know how they're gonna interact with one another. I think I I like I like her. Um, I don't. I can't say that I like again. I'm just I love so much of Ashley Johnson as Ellie, um, but <clears throat> she definitely has the charisma, the mannerisms of Ellie, um, the 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 mouth of Ellie for sure. Um, I think she might take some time to grow on on at least me um, throughout the series, and I know she will. I think you know she's not really meant to be likable at this point in the story, and so you know she's. She kind of feels a little one note, and I know it's only one episode, like give it time, right? But I feel like just like in the game where she sort of was a, like kind of annoying and, and it was annoying Joel, we're going to very quickly start to fall in love with her. And I think, we're, I think this version of Ella from Bella Ramsey uh, will be the same, the same thing. Because I, I think this, this, this episode has proven that this series um, you know, will adapt from the game and, and probably in the same way that Ellie does sort of grow on you. Yeah, it's yeah. Ellie, not Ella. You said Ella El- <laughs> Ella, no, played I... by Bella. Yeah, you Be- said Ella. Oh, oh Bella and <laughs> Belly. Let's just it happens, it happens a Ella. lot, don't worry. <laughs> Anyways, we then see Joel cut in front of a lineup of people waiting to work with a man who goes by 73K Orlando, uh, which I don't know why that's his name, uh, who helps people reach others by radio in exchange for rations, or in this case, cigarettes. He tells Joel that they haven't heard back from Tommy, and it's been three weeks since they sent the message. Uh, Joel tells the man to show him where the tower is in Wyoming, uh, and he circles the Cody Tower on the map, and Joel just immediately takes off. We then see Joel return to his apartment in the QZ as he plans his route uh, and drinks and drugs himself to sleep. He crashes on the bed until the next morning where he wakes up to see Tess making him some coffee. She tells him that he was jumped by some guys, uh, and she tells him that Robert sold the battery to someone else. She asks him to take a breath, and they decide to go quietly... Uh, to go go in quietly and hunt that motherfucker down uh, and get their battery uh, and their truck, uh, and then they'll go find Tommy. So it's interesting, to, again, kind of what we were talking about earlier. Jess, uh, Jesson, <laughs> that's their Hollywood name now, Jess. Uh, you can tell that I'm a little tired reading this. Uh, Tess and Joel uh, are, you know, very much confirmed to be uh, in a relationship here. But I want to ask you guys, you know, we've already kind of talked about that. What did you think of seeing Joel's home life here uh, and the way he he numbs his sort of never-ending pain? It makes a lot of sense as they're able to sort of expand on the character of the TV show format to just sort of, it's just another opportunity to see how he, again, like you said, has been coping for these 
for these last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say the scariest part of the episode for me so far is the way that uh, I believe he was going by what, 73K Orlando? 73K Orlando. The way he describes the outside world. And it's sort of just one line that he uses, but he's really setting up what the actual danger of yeah. the outside world is, and that's other people. And to, you know, to talk about uh, you know slavers and whatnot, like that's you know that's the real oh. danger is is other humans, and so well, I thought that was a very good way of subtly hinting that there's more to this than just you know fungal fungus people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I and I totally agree, and I think that that was the beauty of the game as well, right? Like it is again this idea that you go back to a primitive primal state when when your your livelihood is challenged and you live in fear right but you also live to protect the ones that you love so you know again to to know what's on the outside of the qz and understand and to know that 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 that's looming in the background that's that's great as kevin said foreshadow for for what we'll see in in future episodes but yeah, you know, Joel and Tess obviously have some sort of relationship that is probably um, less romantic and more of a partnership, but there is that insinuation of some sort of romance that might be there. They're comforting each other. They're there for each other, but they also are surviving together. Um, you know what I mean? Like they're banding together uh, to, to you know, stay alive. And I, and I think that that's, that's very much what would happen in in a in a situation like this if you if you were fortunate enough to live 20 years you would probably band with those that you can trust and that will you know are going to look out for you but yeah you can see how he gets very emotional and reacts when he sees her face um you know it shows that there's there's obviously uh, still a, a, he's not entirely soulless from this experience you know he still has mm. a sense of care and a sense of you know looking out for those he cares about still right so um, yeah, I, I think that it, 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 it adds a new layer to the relationship. And, and I think even here, Tess, like she's sort of the motivator. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. she's, she's the one wrangling in Joel to like get him to, you know, to do this whole thing. So it really does, sh- you know, I think that's a great sense of continuity from the game. I, if I'm not mistaken, that was very much Tess's character. She was an in-charge person to kind of challenge, you know, Marlene, who we'll see later. But here is where we get to see a little bit more of Tess as she is versus the scene prior to where, you know, she's she's kind of a victim, more or less. Right. Kevin, if you and I were in this situation, would I be the little spoon or would you be the little spoon? I mean, I'm always the big spoon. I want to be the little spoon for once. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm down. I'm down. So if we ever get stuck in a in a Boston quarantine zone and we got to sleep in the same bed, I'll, I'll make it happen, okay? He'll dress up um, as Rip. <laughs> I'll dress up as oh, Rip. <laughs> you can spoon me any way you want if you do that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I will just to wrap up this section here, I do want to just say, I think the, the pills and drinking wasn't really focused in on, on the game. Uh, but it's a luxury that he's not going to have for a long time going forward here. So seeing seeing sort of them express how broken he is here, I think, is a welcome addition to the to the overall narrative. Um, but let's talk about Marlene. We then get to meet Marlene, the leader of the Fireflies for the Boston QZ. Kim argues with her, feeling like she doesn't know what they're doing anymore. And Marlene tells her that she wants Fedra to, to be distracted uh, as all the Boston Fireflies are going to meet up in one location and leave the QZ permanently. Kim still needs more information, so Marlene tells her 
about her plans with Ellie. Marlene unlocks Ellie's chains and reveals to her that she knows her real name. Uh, that she's not going to change, and that it was her that left her with Fedra when she was a baby. She tells her that she has a greater purpose uh, than any of them could ever imagine. Uh, And then she tells her something that cannot be repeated to anyone, because if she does, she will die. So again, a little more backstory added for the moments leading up to Joel meeting Ellie in the game. Um, You know, what did you think of this addition uh and what do you think it was exactly that marlene told her well it's that's tough to answer without spoilers is it not um i in my mind i thought that she told her about her infection which we're gonna know at the end of the episode right um that's kind of what i was thinking that's about that's where i was is that something about her and the way she handles handled uh, you know being bitten that we find out you know shortly uh after the scene that's clearly very important for her character and and what happens to her next yeah i I mean this um uh there's a comic book uh called uh, american dreams highly highly recommended it's not that long uh and it just talks about uh riley who we'll get to see in the future of this series um as well as um you know there's a riley name drop in this moment as well and so to kind of get this sort of connection to even that storyline by hearing Marlene talk about the fact that she dropped her off with Fedra um, and that she knows uh, Riley in this continuity, I just thought was was really, really cool. And it again, it's really cool to see these, you know, because in the game, we just sort of happen upon uh, Marlene and, and, and Ellie, and they've already got this moment established between them. So to be able to see it at its inception, I think is just, again, just adds such a yeah, it adds context because in the show, they don't have to worry about getting the player back on the sticks, right? So so in the game, it's like, okay, we don't want to have too much cutscene because we need the player exactly. to, care, to control Joel in this moment. So the ability for them to sort of take that time that would have been used by that and then give us this is, ah, oh man, it's the best. Well, and I think, again, as we're talking about all these new additions from the, from the game here in the live action adaptation, like... It's adding more dimension and definition to the existing story that we already know. And to your point, the medium allows for that. The medium allows for us to actually explore a little bit more of that of that versus the video game where you do need to have a very linear trajectory. And and even though that the story was so refined and tight in The Last of Us, and sure, you, you might have thought of those things that may have happened on the outside, they never took you out of the game. But here it's all just adding new layers to what we already know and love from from that story, which just, again, shows how how much right that this series got with adapting the game well. Totally. Uh, Let's keep going here. Joel and Tess make their way through the basement of a flooded building and they pass by an infected stuck to the wall, uh, which was horrible looking. Um, They make their way up up to the hallway where they discover Robert uh, and a bunch of bodies all freshly killed. Uh, Then out of nowhere, Ellie swipes at Joel with a knife uh, and he throws her against the wall as Marlene and Kim point their guns at him. She asks Joel and Tess to get Ellie out of the QZ to the old state house to drop her off with a team of fireflies. Uh, She tells them if they get this simple job done, they'll get a fueled up truck, guns, supplies, whatever they need. And after a brief discussion, they accept the deal. After Ellie and Joel wait in his place, Tess returns and they head out uh, into the rain under the cover of nightfall. And as they sneak past most of the the Fedra agents, uh, they're almost completely out until they're caught 
by the same Fedra agent that Joel was making a deal with earlier in the episode. He begins to check their infection status and all is green until he scans Ellie and she stabs him in the leg. He raises his gun at her and Joel stands in front of her. Uh, after flashbacks to the day he lost his daughter, he tackles the guy and beats him to death in front of Ellie. Tess discovers that Ellie is infected uh, and she proves to them that her infection is three days old and that if she was going to turn by then, she really would have done so by now. They make their way through the hole in the fence uh, and as we slow pan into the radio back at Joel's apartment, we hear Never Let Me, Let, Never Let Me Down Again by Depeche Mode that continues to play over the slow pan towards the collapsed skyscrapers in, uh, in the distance. And also in the distance, we hear the faint screech of the infected and that is the end of episode one of the last of us before we get to our overall thoughts and rating for this episode i wanted to talk about these moments um and especially this moment of ellie seeing joel kill for the first time yeah that that seemed entirely different from when sarah saw joel bludgeon nana adler you know she right. she was defeated she was surprised she was shocked right and she was emotional here it's almost kind of eerie how Ellie is sort of activated and like whoa this guy can throw down I liked seeing the the juxtaposition of 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 these kids reacting and that's that's 20 years of, of time that's passed right you know mm -hmm. living through an infectious you know outbreak it's all Ellie's ever not. known exactly right. so it's it's yeah. you know she you know she's like yo this guy can throw down I just loved as well too that we're we're brought back to the moment that fear crippled Joel and he lost his daughter. Mm -hmm. He was immediately brought back to that moment and reacted uh, the way he thinks he should have in that moment to protect his daughter, uh, which, you know, I think anyone would have, but I'm just saying that as a father, but <laughs> um, you yeah, know, I, cool. I think it's, it's one of those things where we see that that trauma still lives with him and has manifested itself. And that is probably why there's some substance abuse in his, in his life. Cause he's suppressing a lot of what he feels. Right. Mm. Um, and you know, this is so drastically different from his demeanor throughout the entire episode that seemed very, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little bit somber and bleak. He's calculated. He, yeah. Calculated. Sure. Yeah. Let's go with calculated. But here he just, he rages out and leans yeah. right into it. So it, it was it was interesting to see how the rage has manifested itself to see that and to understand the depth of Joel's character. Yeah, I think, you know, he forgets that the girl behind him isn't his daughter in that moment. Right. And he's he, as he's he's infected with rage. Uh, ooh, and, ooh, and, ooh. Right. That memory overtakes his his body in that moment. Right. Fear. Um, and and I, I love uh, there's a if you're listening to this podcast, there's a ton of great podcasts that are out there that are all talking about uh, this show. But one of them, the official uh, The Last of Us podcast, um, Craig Mazin, the director of this episode, he, he I love the way that he, he discusses uh, how love, uh, especially the love of a parent, can be beautiful and a positive and thing, horrifying. but it isn't. But it isn't always exactly. It's he says it's primal. It can lead to the most intense fear, which can lead to the most intense behavior. Uh, and I would say I agree. I mean, love is always at the center of some of the best and worst moments in human history. And I love that that's what they're going to focus on with this show. Is yes. and you you mentioned it earlier, Justin, like fear and love. 
and and the way that those two things can can sort of drive us uh, and and weave back and forth and fuel each other. Exactly, you know I mean? like, dude. love can fuel fear, and fear can fuel love. Right? So like good. it's 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 the two things. So yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, listen, let's get to the, our, our final, you know, overall thoughts and final score uh, for this pilot episode, uh, which we're going to be rating on a scale of one to five broken watches. And sorry, just before we do that, his watch, I, I completely forgot to mention. I mean, it, it happens in the game, but it's just, it's the, his watch is frozen in time, just like he's frozen in time. And so the way that his watch is broken, always going to show, it's always going to show the second that his daughter drew her last breath. And it's like, that's just, again, it's something that I didn't really think of as much playing the game, or maybe I did, but I've, I've since sort of forgotten about it. And it's now being brought up here in the show. It's so good. So on a scale of one to five broken watches, Kevin, how would you rate this episode? I think my score is going to be a little weird compared to my overall thoughts, just in that I loved everything about it. Um, you know, as much as I like Pedro, it was a question of could he be Joel? He, you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was very much I have to wait and see how these characters were were brought to life in in the live action uh, versions of them, and I'm so happy that it looks like they've done an absolutely impeccable job of finding the perfect Joel and the perfect Ellie. And I think that's going to go such a long way for this show, just knocking it out of the park. Um, I think the, the recreation of moments from the game uh, were done so well that for fans of the game, um, you know, it was so cool to see those brought to life. And they're also such important moments for telling the story that for new people to the, the story, I think they'll have really left their impact on those viewers. Uh, the recreation of the the quarantine zone was amazing, uh, and then that final shot walking out into the the great unknown in the 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 decrepit city, just just with the, the the horror that is looming and coming our way in future episodes. I thought everything from start to finish was handled so well. Uh, that said, uh, as I mentioned right towards the top of the show here, uh, it did very much feel like a prologue uh, rather than the show really getting started it was almost like an introduction this is what's happened these are who you know you're going to spend some time with it was almost like establishing the rules establishing what we're getting ourselves into without really getting into it so i'm very very much excited to get into the world of the clickers and and everything like that and the evil people who are living outside of these safe quarantine zones uh so for that reason I'm going to give the episode a four out of five um, broken watches just because I know it's only going to get bigger and better and scarier and more tense as we go on. I'm leaving room for the expectation that episodes are going to be even better than what was a really terrific first episode for a show that uh, has a lot of hype going into it and needed to deliver, and I think it did. I think a lot of people, you can already see a lot of people talking about it. I think this will be the big show uh, to start the year off right. So, no, they, they've done a terrific job here, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Awesome. Justin. Yeah. Yeah, you know, much of the same sentiments. You know, I think this first episode delivered a thrillingly emotional 
start to the series. Uh, it adopts from the game while expanding the story into new territories, and and it feels familiar as as we were talking, you know, from the perspective of the camera and and seeing things similar to that of the game, to to the moments of dialogue that w- were integral to the story. While all of that exists in this first episode, there's new elements that are shedding light on on motives, relationships, and and establishing new character traits for someone like Joel. Um, you know, we talked about it briefly. The cinematography and the camera work is gorgeous, just like the game. I love the the use of the long takes to allow the audience to feel the suspense and tension in moments like like in the car as they're, you know, driving through the mayhem. And and it felt all like the original game. It it it, it beautifully adapted the right moments uh from from the you know the source material you know pedro pascal uh and bella ramsey are are perfect as the characters of joel and ellie and and in the moments that we've seen them on their own uh, i i would say that because we're, we're getting to see how both appear very much like hardened souls that that don't trust others and that are, are very much shaped by the the journeys that they've been on but i am excited to see more of them together in in future episodes but i think how they introduce these two characters apart from one another was smart because we get kind of a sense of the generational difference but also understanding how they're going to have a lot in common uh, as as we would know in, in from the game you know this episode i think got everything right it, it gives fans of the game an honest live action adaptation that totally feels true to the source material while also bringing in a new audience with with conventional tropes that feel familiar to the post-apocalyptic survivalist genre. Uh, it's it's clear after this this episode that much much like the game, the series will center around humanity and what's left in the world and how love and fear, as we were saying, will take center stage for most of the experiences that we are going to see from the the humans. Um, and I think this is a theme that that everyone can relate to. It's the simplicity of of what it is. Like you said, Nate, you know, love and and fear are very closely tied so yeah i can't wait till the next episode Uh, i'm gonna just give this one a five out of five fixed watches i i think this this episode slaps Uh, i know there's gonna be better episodes i know there's gonna be uh way way more but i you know those waters are are probably just gonna be five out of fives because i i suspect this series is is going to is going to kill it you fixed all the watches because they were broken justin now you fixed them wow um well (laughs) <laughs> I completely agree. I think this first episode is exactly what I wanted out of out of a pilot episode of an adaptation of The Last of Us. I think again there's there's moments where that are taken right out of the game. There's dialogue taken right from the game, but then yes, they give us more of that outside story. They answer small questions again like where where Joel went the night Sarah woke up without him. Um the neighbors, the Adlers, like we didn't they weren't the Adlers in the original, right? Like we, we get to sort of learn, get a little bit more depth out of that horrible, horrible situation. Um, and then even just giving us a little bit more of an, a pre-established relationship between Ellie and Marlene. Um, I think, again, the music, Gustavo is freaking killing it. Um, I literally have it over in my record player right now, uh, ready to play. Um, this episode yeah, had me in tears and I knew exactly what was going to happen but that didn't stop it from being so incredibly compelling. And that's a huge win because, again, this is being catered, yes, towards the people that played the original game, and it's being catered towards people who've never touched the game before. And so the fact that it can be compelling for both audiences, 
that's something that I don't really think a video game adaptation has done before. Um, and so the fact that this is basically the opening of the game in almost the same amount of time that it would take to get to this part in the game, it never felt rushed. It never felt cheapened the way it was written as a show. Um, it only adds to it. And I, I think this is how you adapt a video game story into a into a TV show. Uh, and it's just getting started. So yeah, I'm giving it an easy five out of five broken watches. Uh, but that is it for this week's Watch Club for HBO's The Last of Us. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to us wherever you like to listen to podcasts, if you haven't already. And if, we, if you want to write into the show with your thoughts or predictions on the shows we cover in Watch Club, well, let me trade some cigarettes with 73K Orlando in exchange for a message to Justin so that he can let you know how you can reach us outside of your QZ. Well, they can reach us at wearegeekcentric at gmail.com. That's wearegeekcentric at gmail.com or on Twitter at GeekcentricYT, or on Instagram at WeAreGeekcentric. Do you think they'd have the internet? I guess, would they have the internet? Or yeah, not 2003, really? the internet was a thing. It just I know the internet like was <laughs> I knew the internet was a thing in 2003. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it, because like, oh, you know, in 2020, the shut down in 2023. Maybe, yes, of course, I think the internet is not a thing anymore. I think it's all gone. infrastructure has fallen apart, which is why right. they've gone back to radio, which is... they got to go to that radio That's guy. usually the sign of an apocalyptic... <laughs> you know, maybe 73K, they've gone to radio. <laughs> yeah, maybe 73K Orlando was his, like, his handle. On his like Twitch streams, or I think I think seventy three k is like his radio tag, right? Yeah, seventy three k Orlando. Like maybe he Orlando, maybe he originally yeah. lived in Orlando, Florida, and had to move to 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 Boston. Um, okay, well, uh, keep in mind we also have a ton of uh, we could just keep talking about this show. Keep in mind we also have a ton of other great episodes covering the latest in movies and TV shows and games, uh, including our recent Geek Back. Uh, episode where we took a look back at 2022 and our favorite movies, TV shows. We discussed our biggest disappointments and what we're looking forward to most uh, in the year that is 2023. We've got a ton of interviews out now, like our interview with the Bad Batch themselves, D. Bradley Baker. Justin sat down with Star Wars The Bad Batch writer Jennifer Corbett uh, and supervising director Brad Rao. And speaking of The Bad Batch, if you enjoyed this Watch Club uh, and you're watching that show, well, we're also releasing weekly breakdowns for that series as well with our fourth episode out to tomorrow so you can join us there and get all batchy with us uh we have some great stuff planned for 2023 including even more interviews and reviews uh as well as convention coverage and so much more so again subscribe here if you haven't already subscribe on youtube at youtube.com slash geekcentric uh, so you can see our faces you can keep up with all the great stuff we got coming at you uh kevin justin thank you so much for for joining me for this watch club and as we say when you're lost in the darkness look, look for, for the, the light, light.